I think as a leader, and, and I believe this to be true in terms of my approach, you have to stay true to your mission. And so you can't be everything to everyone, but the clarity you need to provide to prospective students and to your alumni is about staying true to your message. Um, and so even with all that collaboration, you can't, you can't morph or change just because it sounds good today. Because you know, we were founded in 1885, approaching 140 years. And the, the reality of it is we're going to be here 140 years from now. I'm, I'm betting on it. and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and compelling topics that are reshaping higher education, and we get to speak with higher ed's most innovative thinkers and doers. I am so excited to be joined for this episode by the highly dynamic and accomplished college president, Dr. Mary Beth Cooper, now in her ninth year as president of Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. President Cooper has gained a reputation as a mission-driven, highly strategic and student-centric leader. Among her many accomplishments, she has instituted several new innovative partnerships and initiatives that have extended her college's reach in ways that benefit both students and the broader community. We will include a link to her distinguished bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, President Cooper, welcome to the Ingenious U community. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you all this morning. I hope this finds you well and that you're taking good care of yourself through these still tumultuous times. So I'm going to jump right in and uh, ask you uh, about uh, what it's like uh, being the first female president at Springfield College. I believe you are the first female president. You came to the role extraordinarily well prepared. So can you share a little uh, bit about your journey to the role and in particular, those aspects of your journey that best prepared you for the role of president? And if there's any insights you wanna, we have a lot of, in fact, we have um, about 55 to 60% of our audience are women. So I'm sure they will be interested in, in hearing about your journey uh, as the first female president. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. It feels like a lifetime ago or yesterday. When you look back on, it was eight years ago, boy, next week that I came to Springfield College and I was indeed their first female and I am their first female president. And to be honest, and I've said this to other groups that I've spoken with, I think they were ready for a first female president. They were not ready for a first man. Coming here as the first female president, they didn't really know what to do with my husband. He was still working and he is still working. He's a vice president of an insurance company in New York. And they, the first couple of questions were like, what do we call him? <laughs> and I was like, we call him Dave or, you know, and then they certainly have given him the nickname of first man. Um, but that, that's not new to Bay Path either. So that's not a new thing to you, but it was a new thing for us. And we determined pretty early on that they were ready for a female president, but again, what do we do with him? And managing a house, managing the job, trying to determine uh, where my priorities were. The first couple of years were, were a training for all of us in terms of what that might look like. Um, and oftentimes when I walk into a room with my husband, people think he's the president oh. because he looks 
typical to what a president looks like, tall, um, you know, he's six five, he's a big guy, and he he can take over a room really quickly. And so um, we had some funny moments the first year, but that's all behind us. I think now it's it's not a big deal. And I think more and more that women as leaders are more more welcome to the table because if the pandemic has taught us anything, I think the multitasking and the concern that we have for work-life balance and taking care of people at home as well as working is a strength that you'll see in, in female leaders that this is the time for us to emerge. And so um, it was a good fit from the very beginning. I have a long career with the YMCA as a volunteer. And so probably 25 years volunteering in Rochester, New York. And I was the board chair at the time at the Rochester YMCA. And they said, you know, the presidency of Springfield College is open and they've got a tie to the YMCA. And I did not know anything about Springfield. And so I thought, well, let me check it out. And so I looked at it and indeed, because of the connection to service, which is very important to me as an individual and also the history of this college, it was a good fit. And so the position opened up rather quickly and I jumped right in and haven't been, um, never looked back. It, it's been a great opportunity for me. And as you mentioned, I'm in my ninth year with many more ahead trying to make some really critical strategic decisions for the college and have a great team working with me. Had you thought about a presidency or was this something on your radar or was it when you saw this particular opportunity that it just clicked for you? I'm, I'm curious. Well, so, and this again might uh, appeal to some of your, your listeners, but I, we worked in Rochester for 25 years and I was the chief student affairs officer at three different institutions. St. John Fisher, University of Rochester, and then RIT, three very different type schools, a four-year private or R1, and then RIT, which is a, a very large independent institution. And I lived in one house. And so it's very interesting when you think about needing to move, to move up. Uh, and what I learned from that experience is that never to burn bridges. People remember how you came into a job and people remember how you leave. And so even today, when we go back to Rochester, I run into former students um, and former colleagues. And I thought each one of those institutions provided me an opportunity, um, but I was running out of schools. I had to, <laughs> had to leave the state to become a president. <laughs> and so it was my first presidency I applied for and uh, ultimately, I, I was the successful candidate. So it, it's been eight great years. Uh, it's a great special place. I love these students and I love the mission. Now I've been told that you are highly committed to mentoring the next generation of leaders and that you have personally been active in both formal and informal mentoring relationships. Why is this something that's important to you and how do you advise those who will come up after you? Well, I still believe that women in the workplace don't always have a seat at the table. And oftentimes when they have a seat at the table, they feel somewhat silenced in terms of their opinion. And so I do, I am committed to trying to find ways for men and women, but particularly women to find a place at the table that they feel comfortable. Um, I am um, a product of a family that has six children, five older brothers, and I was the last. And so that shaped me in some ways to understand working with men in a different way in terms of having my own voice and being 
clear and raising my hand and being heard. And I also think that women have a responsibility to help those behind them. And so I do serve, I've got, usually I've got two mentors in women seeking to be athletic directors at colleges. And I work with them about what sport to be involved in, what things they need to be paying attention to, um, because the NCAA also has a lot of things that are moving um, around at this point in terms of trying to identify what their space is going to be next year. Um, and I've worked with young women trying to ensure that, you know, and for me, um, I had an opportunity to live in one community for 25 years. And during that time, I finished my first PhD, went back and got a second master's, and then went back and got a second PhD, all because a mentor told me that while you're here, keep investing in not only the community, but also your own skill set. And so I've been very, very fortunate to have people ahead of me, mostly men, unfortunately, that said, if I were you, I'd get an MBA, or if I were you, I'd get a second doctorate in management, because that will help you be a leader of an organization that's got fiduciary um, responsibility. So from my perspective, if somebody asks, asks me my opinion, I will offer it, and then they can make their own path. Uh, I've often said, Melissa, that you don't want to follow my path, because my path was determined by a lot of other things that your path might not be determined by your family situation, what you want out of life, um, your partner or spouse's occupation. And so I think the best thing you can do for yourself is to keep investing in yourself as well as your community and do the best you can at the job you're currently in. That will lead you to your next job. Mm, boy, uh, that's, that's, uh, those are words that should be emblazoned, <laughs> I think somewhere for all for, for all of us, um, you know, the, the advice that you received about uh, strengthening your uh, fiduciary responsibilities, your oversight skills and understanding, that's something um, I think women really need to take to heart. And I don't think it's, I don't know that that's always on the radar um, for, for women as we're coming up the ranks. So I'm really glad you mentioned, mm. mentioned that. Um, under your leadership, Springfield College, as I mentioned earlier, has entered into partnerships that have been transformational for your institution, but also for the community. And two examples um, that I'm aware of, um, one is the ability field, field that was built in partnership with the Cal S. Ripken Foundation uh, and the new Educare facility that is on the edge of your campus. Can you tell us how partnerships like this fit into your overall institutional strategy, how they came about? Um, you, uh, you've been described as very innovative in this regard as somebody who has a mind that is finely tuned uh, to possibility, alternative revenue sources. So I think, I think our listeners just would be interested in hearing you talk out loud about um, how and why you pursue, pursued these opportunities and how they fit in terms of the big, the big picture strategy. Certainly. Um, and partnerships have been a part of my strategy moving forward uh, because we can't do anything alone. And four-year privates in New England have lots of challenges. And the only way we're going to thrive is to be with, I think, critical partnerships. And you know, it kind of liken it back to my time in Rochester. When I moved to Rochester in 1989, and I don't know how much you know about that community, but when I moved there, um, Xerox, IBM, Kodak, 
all of the manufacturing companies were the players in Rochester. And so when I went to get my MBA at Simon, there were two people from Kodak, two people from Xerox. That be, it was all about manufacturing. Well, when I left in 2013, almost 25 years later, the three top employers were the University of Rochester because of not only the institution, but also the, um, the hospital, RIT, and the third was Wegmans, a grocery store. Now, if you had told me, Melissa, in 1989, when I moved there, that two schools and a grocery store were going to be the leading um, industry in Rochester, I would have said, do you not know about Kodak? Do you not know about all these wonderful manufacturing companies? And so I brought that to some of my very first meetings at EDC saying, you don't know today what's going to be your industry in tomorrow. But I do think that medical centers and and higher education institutions are critical for Springfield and the Pioneer Valley. Mm. And so as we started to partner, I started looking to organizations that have similar values. So I had a very, very assertive, I'll use that term, um, alumni who kept saying, when are you gonna do the baseball field? It was really the last field we had not done. And I said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find somebody to help us do a baseball field. Well, the Cal Ripken Foundation in Baltimore now has built 100 fields. We're going to celebrate that in November. Um, but they, at that point, probably had built 80, 80 fields, youth parks in areas where youth did not have access mm -hmm. to a, a, a field to play in. And so when I went on the web and looked at their website and they talked about their values, it was youth, education, providing opportunity. And so from my perspective, it was a perfect fit. The same with Educare, youth, education, making the very best opportunity for individuals to, to be successful. And so what I've often say to my team, and when I made the pitch to Ripken, and then also to Educare in terms of the land being available to them, it's you wanna find partners that are aligned, that you have similarities. And, and that's not saying without naming any other industry that I wouldn't align with somebody else, but it felt like we were partnering for the good of two communities, whether it be their organization and ours. And again, the Ripken Foundation, they're celebrating their hundredth field in November and we are still the only college they've partnered with. I'd love to see that change. I'd love to see other colleges um, partner with them because Special Olympics, Miracle League, the ability field that you mentioned is our opportunity to provide to the community that doesn't have access to an ability field. Normally, sometimes it's adjacent or down the street or around the corner, but our ability is field is embedded in with our baseball field and our students get a chance to make the impact with youth that have lots of challenges. And it, I think it, it's grounding for them and humbling for them to see that not everybody has the advantage that they have. And so it was a proud moment and then we, finished up the baseball field, the ability field, and we've also done a softball field for our female student athletes. I wanted them to have every opportunity that our male athletes had. And so they've got state-of-the-art first-class softball field here that we opened in the middle of the pandemic. What a crazy time. You know, on a related note, I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, now you've had going on nine years in Springfield. You know that there are many, more than a few colleges in our area. Mm -hmm. um, and we're all sort of playing in the same field in, in some ways. Do you have any thoughts about how, how we could work together maybe in a more strategic way? You know, you mentioned 
you know, the, the shifting sands and obviously we're all competing. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, given your, given your uh, training and your mindset in terms of strategy, if you have any thoughts in that regard. Sure. So when I was in Rochester, again, uh, prior to coming here, there were many institutions of higher education there. I mentioned a couple that I worked at, yeah. but there were even more than that. There are community colleges um, and certainly state universities. I think that it is the responsibility of college presidents or university presidents to reach out and make as many bridges as we can. You know, we've got CIC, one of our organizations that we all work with, Council of Independent Colleges, trying to figure out are there synergies in terms of supplies that we offer, services that we offer, maybe some of them that are more back of the house that our students don't see, if we could do it more uh, economically to provide some budget relief for all of our budgets. I think that's a critical move for us. And we've had meetings over the last eight years and we'll continue to have them. I've really enjoyed my relationships with Carol and Harry and, and you know, Vinny, I mean, we've, we've had lots of great conversations. We need to keep having them. And so the CFOs of the organizations that are in Pioneer Valley or Springfield, Longmeadow, um, are continuing to work together. Talked a little bit about dealing with the pandemic and thinking about ways that we could provide vaccinations or testing sites um, and sharing resources. I think it's about, we're all different, a little bit different. Our missions are different and we may have some cross apps, but if, if you're offering Japanese, I don't need to replicate that. Our students can take courses in Japanese from your institution or other institutions. The difficulty is, you know, you, I think as a leader, and, and I believe this to be true in terms of my approach, you have to stay true to your mission. And so you can't be everything to everyone, but the clarity you need to provide to prospective students and to your alumni is about staying true to your message. Um, and so even with all that collaboration, you can't, you can't morph or change just because it sounds good today. Because you've, you know, we were founded in 1885, approaching 140 years, and the the reality of it is, we're going to be here 140 years from now. I'm I'm betting on it. There has never been a better time to study higher education, and the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. 
visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The, the partnerships that you've just described are great examples of game-changing innovations, I think, as opposed to the kinds of innovation that just tinker at the edges. Um, and you're obviously very good at seeing um, opportunities and new possibilities. Can you say a little bit more about how you see your own role in terms of leading and driving innovation. As you know, there are some presidents who are the ones that come up with the ideas and they drive them through the, the institution. There are other presidents who try to put in place a process that surfaces and bubbles up innovation. So uh, how do you think about innovation and what advice do you have for other leaders in terms of how to, how to generate it, how to, how to create an innovative kind of culture? Great question. And I think um, where we have an opportunity as leaders, and in particular female leaders, I'll say that on the confines of this podcast, is it's really not about my tenure uh, from my perspective. You know, since I've been here, we've built some baseball fields, softball fields, we've renovated the library, building a health science building. It's going to be cutting edge, it's going to have telemedicine in it, maker space. We've got things in the pipeline. But it really is the way I look at a presidency, I came here in 2013 and I'll leave here at an end date. And, and during that period of time, I will be able to lead a team through a lot of initiatives that will hopefully lead the, the institution in a better place. Uh, when I came here, our endowment was 50 million and now it's over 100 million. So we've doubled it in eight years. And that's due to a lot of things that, that's my trustees involved in that, a CFO helping us. And my goal is to get that to 150. And I think my responsibility is to keep putting goals in front of people. We had our largest class last fall, incoming class. And that's because we were able to secure a terrific vice president of enrollment management that helped make that happen. And so on one hand, I talk a lot about my team because they help us do everything we need to have happen. But there were moments last year that I felt if this school had difficulty during the pandemic, it wouldn't, they wouldn't remember who the provost was and the vice president of student affairs. And I don't mean that to be a slight, they would say that you know, that closed under Cooper's era. Mm -hmm. And so the, the burden of the pandemic, I think presidents would tell you, and that's why you saw so many retire in the last year, it was too much, it, you know, the angry letters or you know people questioning your decision making around safety and we have really stood on the premise that safety is our number one priority and everything we did we did thinking about safety but we also played sport we competed as safely as we could um, we tested aggressively we were testing um, weekly and then before our students competed and so i think that as a leader you've got to weigh all those decisions understanding that you may have a little bit more responsibility because of your position, but 
it really was a team. In fact, I'm looking forward to our student convocation and our all college meeting where we get to highlight the, the folks that kept the custodial staff that kept our residence halls open were equally important to the success of last year as I was. We just did our job a little differently. Let me go back to the mission because you talked previously about the mission, the importance of the, the, the mission, the humanics mission, which is such a significant part of what Springfield College uh, is about, has been about since, um, since your founding. Um, can you say a little bit more about how the mission aligns with your own values and how you live your life? How, how would somebody see that mission playing out in the way you live? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so our mission is spirit, mind, and body and leadership and service to others. I'll tell you that I've worked on a number of college campuses. I've never been to a place where students know the mission verbatim. Now, again, it's not a very complicated mission, so it's not in Latin or it's not three sentences long. It's pretty direct. Uh, but the spirit, mind, and body is one that our students embrace as well as our faculty and staff, especially those that spend their career here. Uh, you're either drawn to it or you're not. And so, and I think when students come and you know, prospective faculty and prospective employees come, they are amazed how our students, our students really embrace it. So from my perspective, in terms of how I've always been a person that believes in holistic education and thinking about you know, life balance. My husband and I have been married 35 years. We've got a 29-year-old son who's in pilot training in the United States Air Force. He's, um, he believes in service. So it's, it's something that has been a part of our family for a long time. I've got brothers that were first responders, firefighters and police officers. And so my dad was an FBI agent. So I grew up with service and understanding that there is something bigger than you in terms of what you need to do. And so I think any leadership role, really any job is about fit. And so when I came here and saw it and saw it in action, I was, I was, I was intrigued and impressed. Um, and so students, I work out in the wellness center uh, when we're open, um, usually three or four times a week, they see me walking over to the wellness center. They see me participating in spiritual events down around Lake Massasoit or in the chapel. And so, and I think students are like children and dogs. They know when you're not authentic. So you can say all day long, you're student focused or you really love students. But if you're not at their soccer games, if you're not breaking bread with them, then it's it sounds like a really good soundbite. And so I think one of the things I'm most proud of, and I, I say this to our faculty every once in a while, I had a faculty member three or four years ago say to me, you know, your problem is you're too student focused. <laughs> and I said, you know, if that's what they put on my tombstone, that's gonna be okay with me. So it's not, from my perspective, I certainly care deeply about our faculty and our staff and our employees make this, this place work. But without students, we would be some other entity and not a, you know, an institute of higher education. So I feel pretty strongly that that's the hat I'm gonna you know, hang my, that's where I'm gonna hang my hat, being student focused. Um, and my husband's that way too. He comes in and all weekend long, we're at athletic events and we're at performances. And for some period of time until I retire, that's what I'll continue to do. 
uh, where they're at, I'm going to be. And um, they give me the greatest joy. That's why last year was hard because I didn't have enough student contact. Yeah. Um, it, we all didn't, right? We were wearing masks. We were, I was teaching from my basement to a, a course that I was teaching on leadership, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. It just wasn't the same for a place like yeah. Springfield College. Now you have a reputation for being a very strong team builder. And that's obvious from what you just talked about in terms of your thoughts about innovation. Can you say a little bit more about how you recruit and build a team and what do you look for? Um, we have a lot of higher ed students who listen to the podcast, people that are in master's degrees and getting their doctorate. And I, I'm sure they would be interested in knowing um, what sorts of characteristics, what you look for when you're hiring, especially for vice president, vice president roles. So we have a concept um, that, that's not new. We didn't, we borrowed it from elsewhere called team one. And so my leadership team, I've got a very flat leadership team. So I, I've got 10 direct reports, which all of the books in management tell you that's way too many, but I've got my communications person sitting next to my vice president of student affairs sitting next to my provost. And we, um, again, the concept is team one. So you come to our leadership team and we call it the president's leadership team. And for, you know, we have stand-up meetings twice a week. We've got regular meetings that are two hours every other week. You've got to take your hat off as leading the vice president of institutional advancement, for example, or the provost. And every decision that we talk about and make, whether it be about masking and vaccinations, about what we're going to do around non-tuition revenue, is about what's the very best decision for the college and not for your division. But for at least two hours a week, you couldn't talk about, well, my team needs this, or in student affairs, we need this, or the faculty want that. It's what's the best decision for the college because I need people to come in and be supportive of the institution moving forward and less about them and who they're advocating for. When you need to advocate for your team or your staff members, you do that in a one-on-one -on -one with me and we figure out what we can make happen. But I think oftentimes, and I've been a vice president at three institutions prior to being a president, if you come in only arguing for your division or what makes sense, the institution suffers. And so the concept and Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni's book called The Advantage was the first time I read about this was saying the best teams work in the best interest of the entity. And, and so far as I've hired people, we've talked about it and um, we've got a great team. We sort through a lot of problems. I'm sure there are times where they feel like, why am I in the middle of this conversation? It doesn't matter to me. Well, we need bright people around the table helping us make the best decisions possible and understanding the risk, how we mitigate it, what we need to, to ensure that We've kind of looked at every uh, nook and cranny and, and, and tried to discover possibilities of consequences of our decisions. And so we may talk more than other teams might like to, but I think it's resulted in us making decisions where we were able to come out of the pandemics thus far stronger than we went in. And so I do attribute that to my team, um, give them a lot of autonomy. I'd like them to be problem solvers before they come to me. And so, I took the spoke leadership of people just reporting to the president out of the game and I'll ask them to come to me with a solution because uh, our, you know, I travel quite a bit 
and we're in the middle of a campaign, a capital campaign. We'll we'll be announcing it in November, so it's not a news breaking, but it's not a surprise because we've been raising funds for the last two years. I need for them to work together and not need me as a mediator uh, to bring me solutions for the college. I've heard you quoted in terms of talking about the value of a four-year degree, and 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 as you know, it comes up a lot these days, frequently in the context of the question is the model of higher ed broken? And a lot of times when people raise that question, I think what they're referring to is, has the four-year degree lived, lived its usefulness? So what are your thoughts about this? And uh, is a four-year, in your opinion, is a four-year degree still relevant? And if so, why? So my answer comes from a personal perspective as well as a professional um, perspective. And yes, the short answer is yes, I think it's very relevant, especially at a place like Springfield College, where the co-curricular sits as a great partner to the curricular. And you know, with about 90% of our students living on campus, the residential model for these students, and about 40% of our students play athletics, some of them are dual athletes. But from my perspective, a place like Springfield College has a place today and tomorrow. Uh, we do about 120,000 hours of service in the community every year. Now, the average for a four-year private institution is around 40,000. So we triple that. Uh, we don't call for scholarships. We don't give them anything else. And to, in fact, this morning, we were in a meeting trying to dissuade students from volunteering in the fall or doing it by Zoom, or could we do it here and provide? Because all through the pandemic, we were doing uh, opportunities for food banks, tutoring online. Uh, our students have a calling for service. And I, I think from my perspective, to on balance, provide an opportunity to educate young people, but also educate them about their role as a citizen matters. If they don't get it at a college or university, they may never get it. Um, and, and also as a parent, as I mentioned earlier, I have a son who's 28. And when he went to school, and he went to a four-year public institution, he actually went to the same school that I did, I had hoped that he would grow and change. Um, and so the notion of people thinking that their son or daughter is gonna go somewhere and come out at the end of four years exactly the same isn't realistic and misses the opportunity of education. You wanted to explore the possibilities of different career options and diversity. And that's what I experienced as an undergrad. And I think that's what my son did as well. And he came out with a finance degree and operations management, and now he's in pilot training. And so what he went in for isn't what he came out, but during that four years, he really grew as a young man, uh, making decisions, and that's that's the personal piece. But I've also seen students that come through a Springfield College or an RIT or wherever I've worked in the past, that as a result of this experience, they have growth that they couldn't have gotten from their parents' basement on a Zoom, you know, and although I appreciate online education, I've been a part of it, I've done executive education, and it too is really important for a lot of people that have need access. But I can make that argument, but at the same time say a four-year residential with a strong co-curricular and a strong mission can make all the difference in the world in terms of your personal growth and your commitment to being a good citizen. And I think that's what higher education needs to focus on. I, I think our publics and our community colleges talk a little bit more about that, but we 
as you know, when I look at Springfield College, we're you know, we're a, a, a gift to the community, and the community is a gift to us. Mm. So I love that question. I could answer that all day long. <laughs> well, I and I I I've heard you speak to this elsewhere, and I know how passionate you get. So I'm I appreciate your uh, responding uh, again uh, as a part of this podcast now. Your, your response is actually a great segue to my final two questions. We're coming to the end of our time. And uh, the first of those two questions has to do with, uh, as you look to the future, what's on the radar for Springfield College? You, you said that you're going to be announcing a capital campaign, which is always very exciting. Um, what other things are you doing to ensure the college's long-term viability? So, you know, again, we are um, building a new health sciences building on campus and the pandemic had some, some positives. It taught us a lot about telemedicine, taught us about maker spaces. What, you know, how can we build bridges with some of our healthcare partners in terms of vaccinations or testing? I mean, 18 months ago, I wouldn't have introduced any of those topics into the building, into the, to the design phase. And so we've had an opportunity to think about what we can do and how, how important is brick and mortar? Well, it's important to our prospective students when you compare one institution to another and they say, that's got a brand new building, got, got great new labs. It's about thinking about learning and teaching. How can we do it in a mode and a modality that provides the very best surgeons, the very best PAs, the very best teachers, and, and I think from my perspective, we have to sharpen our own skills around providing the best opportunities for students to learn. Uh, again, I do think moving forward, we've got lots of things on the plate here. We've got an academic grain that we're developing, looking at um, not only just the new health sciences building, but what other academic programs do we need to provide for, some that are brick and mortar and some that may not be. Uh, and uh, I think it's exciting. From, I was saying to a group of student affairs staff yesterday, I had a chance to be with them. And I said, you know, the next 10 years, this is exactly where you want to be. You want to be in a position where you can shape how higher education um, becomes. And I don't know all the answers, but from my perspective, it's about partnerships. It's about focusing on the student. It's about non-tuition revenue, whether that's certificate programs or other identities but also tradition. And, and so for a place like Springfield College, we're gonna focus on humanics and that's what's gonna carry the day. So I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I know that humanics will still be at the center of what we do and the triangle will be as relevant today as it's gonna be in 2025 or 2050 or you know, whenever the, the time goes and we'll continue to partner with people and we'll try to be good citizens. I'm gonna ask you to think outside of uh, the boundaries of Springfield College and think about higher ed more globally. So where do you think higher ed is headed? What are the top two or three things that you believe need to be on everyone, everyone's radar as we look to the future? Well, I don't think I can limit it to two, but I'll give you a few. <laughs> One, mental health issues. Um, our students are coming back to us raw and vulnerable and, and not with the support that they need. And, and I think, again, another really positive from the pandemic was that the opportunity to provide mental health counseling 
through Zoom was a savior. And it provided, it's kind of like, it reminds me of the old call in when you'd call in from your bedroom to the radio program and you'd, you'd connect with somebody okay. via that modality. And I think this, that provided, so thinking about mental health issues, that's gotta be a number one priority. I think the, and you're gonna be surprised by some of these answer, the, the name, image and likeness from the NCAA is a significant issue. And, and I don't think that's on president's radars at all. Uh, I happen to serve on that committee. And I understand that, I mean, we had a young woman, Michaelia, who swam in the Olympics last month. She's, she's a perfect candidate for somebody um, approaching her and wanting to be her agent. And I think D3 has said, it's really not a D3 issue, it's a D1 issue, when in fact it is D1, two, and three issue. And so that plays into as a commodity somehow that we need to understand. Um, and, 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 and many institutions will uh, not be as responsible as they can about using the image of their students. And so getting the consent, if you want to be on a billboard, we'd like you to be on our billboard. Is that something that's agreeable to you? And asking people for their permission. So that's certainly one. The cost of higher education is always an issue in terms of affordability, how we can continue to provide, whether that's double the Pell grants or thinking about keeping reducing our costs. So as we think about tuition and how important it is to have X, Y, or Z, there was a period of growth in the 80s more so than anywhere else where you were building rock climbing walls. And I have always been a part of the notion of you want residence halls to be to follow the Maslow's um, theory of clean and and sufficient, but it doesn't need to be a Taj Mahal, and, you, and maybe you don't need a rock climbing wall. That's not essential to learning. It's a nice amenity, but every amenity we add to students' tuition bills costs them more money. And I think every once in a while we've got to pay attention to what's what matters. Certainly your libraries and learning centers where they've got access either physically or in person to journals and research materials. And so from my perspective, it is asking the leadership team to make tough decisions about what you will offer and what you won't offer. So cutting costs, mental health issues, NIL, I think those are my three. I'll, I'll stop there. Well, Mary Beth, this has been such a pleasure to learn more about your journey, to hear your perspective um, on all kinds of things. And I'm just very grateful for your time and for your willingness to share your story with our audience. Well, it's been a wonderful hour and you were a perfect host. So thank you for making it easy for me to talk about what I really like to talk about. And that's been College. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. 
and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.